HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're turning our attention to how the global pandemic is impacting our mental health and how food brings us comfort during these times. I've never understood why people have said I'm brave for solo dining. Food can kind of be a source of solace or it can be a source of excitement or like an activity to, to keep you busy. When there's a crisis, typically the restaurant industry is one of the industries that springs into action in terms of being like, we'll come in, we'll take care of you. Tune in to Meet and 3 to learn more about the psychological effects of COVID-19. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Heifer International believes agriculture can be a path out of poverty. Under its umbrella is Heifer Ranch, a regenerative, a regenerative, organic, and humane ranch run by three women in Little Rock, Arkansas. Donna Kilpatrick, Heifer Ranch's ranch manager and land steward, and William Matovu, who oversees Heifer's work in Uganda, are joining me today to discuss the flaws of our current food system and how alternate systems like theirs can offer lasting change. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So, Donna, let's start with you. How did Heifer Ranch get started? Sure. Um, well, Heifer Ranch has been around for a while. Um, its origins back in about, I believe it was 1971, we acquired the ranch from a local farmer. And uh, we acquired the ranch because Heifer International had purchased a herd of 2,000 cattle uh, with the original intent of raising these cows, breeding them, and then um, shipping those animals uh, throughout our, to our various project partners throughout the world. Um, so we did that for a while. Um, and then by the mid 80s, we realized that this uh, development model was flawed in some ways because it was much more efficient and would support the local economies better within the countries that we were working for them to raise their own livestock and for us to provide uh, training for those farmers. Mm -hmm. um, so in the late 80s, uh, the ranch began to really focus on educating the general public about Heifer's work to end hunger and poverty and care for the earth, which is our mission. Um, the focus on educating the general public continued really until recently when as Heifer USA, we began to sort of go back to our roots of agriculture and focus specifically on training farmers 
and on scaling up our ag- agricultural enterprises. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just to kind of define some buzzwords here, um, can you explain to our listeners what regenerative farming is, um, what, how farmers can be certified organic, and what exactly humane farming is? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So when I think about regenerative agriculture, I really consider regenerative agriculture to be working with nature instead of against it. So it's a system of farming that is ecologically restorative. You're looking at the whole ecosystem instead of one crop or one species of livestock, um, knowing that every effect that you have on the land affects something else. So it's looking at the whole system um, as your as your production. Um, organic agriculture, and I'm talking specifically about certified organic uh, agriculture, requires that farmers and um, farmers document their processes and also get inspected every year. So USDA certified organic foods are those that are grown and processed according to um, federal guidelines addressing, among other factors, things like soil quality, um, animal handling practices, raising practices, uh, pest and weed control, and use of additives. At Heifer Ranch, our market garden is certified organic. Um, Our livestock production is not. we have no USDA accrediting uh, certifying agents in the state of Arkansas. So if someone in the state of Arkansas wants to be certified organic, um, they have to have an, an accreditor come in from a neighboring state to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what was the other? I think you asked about humane farming. Mm-hmm. It almost feels like um, humane and farming seem to be at odds with each other, right? So, so can you explain um, what exactly is what exactly it means? Yeah, well, I'll explain what it means to me. Um, Mm -hmm. So as a rancher, I consider humane farming practices that really ensure that all livestock are allowed and encouraged to exhibit their natural uh, physiological instincts. So that's really basic. Um, When I think about humane farming, I want to make sure that, for example, our cattle are grazing. Cattle are ruminant animals. They're designed to to work in mobs, to be mobbed up, mooing, uh, moo, uh, uh, mowing, excuse me, <laughs> and um, always uh, and mooing as well, uh, <laughs> mowing and always moving. So they're ruminants. They're they're designed by nature to graze. Um, pigs, for example, are designed to root in the ground. So we want to make sure that our pigs are in woodlots and they can exhibit their distinctive characteristics. Chickens scratch it around. Um, So that our livestock have access to sunlight, access to the feed that's appropriate for their biological design, um, that they feel secure, cared for. And I'm going to say that they feel loved. And I feel like we do that at Heifer Ranch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of these um, processes you explain, they, they feel very obvious, right? Like mm-hmm. an animal should be able to exhibit its life before exhibits natural characteristics um, before we get to, you know, enjoy their meat and whatever. Um, but why is that such a problem or why is that such a challenge for most farms to achieve? Um. I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess one thing that I would think is that as as farms and ranches scale, sometimes uh, it's perceived that farms have to scale to such a size that they're working on monocultures and and working with large numbers of animals. And sometimes that that ability to make things affordable, um, you know, you move away from from 
looking at what the animal needs in terms of its physiological distinctive characteristics and it becomes easier to for example put cattle on a cement slab than to, to than to take the time to go out and to move a, a polywire fence and let them graze on a daily basis mm-hmm. um so yeah no no keep going Donna? Yes, I'm still here. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, you go. You go ahead. I don't want to cut you off. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like I feel like it's really um, it's the type of farming that you choose to do, and then and then how that's done on a day, daily basis. And again, um, as farms scale, um, those daily interactions with animals, you you become more removed, um, and that becomes hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think scale is a really important thing to focus on here. Um, so. How would you categorize um, heifer ranch? It's like not quite small, but not quite large, right? Yeah, I think I think heifer ranch is really the perfect size. Um, so we're twelve hundred acres. Um, I think that the ranch provides the perfect amount of space for us to be able to focus on regenerative agriculture and to be able to diversify our, our livestock. So um, our ranch is. 1,200 acres that's basically made up of pastures as well as uh, pine trees that have been planted since 2014 through 2017. Um, so, you know, interesting, uh, interestingly enough, when I began at the ranch, I noticed all the pine trees and thought, gosh, what are we going to do with all this? This is a lot of pines. There's about 400 acres uh, planted. Um and as our swine uh, herd increased and, and we began producing more, we realized that it was really the, the perfect area to mm-hmm. uh, raise the pigs. So putting them in these woodlot systems and let them, letting them clean out um, underneath the canopy of pines. Um, and that has been really a wonderful uh, sort of enterprise for us. It's scaling up um, as we grow for Grassroots Farmers Cooperative, which uh, Heifer uh, USA helped um, start in 2014. Um, so for us, focusing on regenerative agriculture, the the ecology of our, our ranches is the perfect scale for what we're doing. We're growing about 200 cattle, Right now, we're this year we're finishing 360 pigs in under woodlot canopies of pine. Um, we're raising about 30,000 poultry on pasture, um, and finishing. I think this year we're going to do about 150 lambs again on pasture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really sounds like Heifer Ranch, um, let alone Heifer International, is kind of a unicorn. Um, I feel like. <laughs> the the ability to scale um, while still maintaining your commitment to your mission and your quality is very difficult to do. And so can you explain um, kind of the challenges other small farmers around you or mid-sized farmers are experiencing and why they're not as encouraged to scale and, you know, maybe they're to be absorbed by the larger the larger guys? Yeah, well, hopefully one of the things that we're doing is um, I didn't really talk a lot about the trainings that we're doing. So in addition to um, the production that we do to support Grassroots uh, Farmers Cooperative, our other mission at the ranch is to train farmers. So hopefully through our training programs, which um, consist of everything from being, you know, day-long trainings to multi-day trainings to uh, trainings that someone could do by going to a YouTube um, video such that we've got two excellent videos uh, right now on YouTube that are on uh, woodlot swine production and on um, pasture poultry production. 
um, they're getting a lot of views right now. I think the late, latest count was 200,000 200, views on these, and they're really wow. new. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there are challenges. One of, the, one of the challenges is there hasn't been the technical assistance to help these farmers find markets and to be able to scale up. And through our training programs, Heifer Ranch is really, I believe, um, providing an opportunity for uh, learning, um, for coming to the ranch and, and sort of seeing what we're doing and to be, be able to um, utilize some of those things in, in, in uh, farms operations in our area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so William, um, let's move over to you. Um, how did you get connected with Heifer International and what exactly do you oversee in Uganda? So um, I joined Heifer International in 2008 and I came to uh, manage one of their signature project, the largest smallholder dairy uh, project in East Africa. Which, were, which was funded by Bill and Melinda Gates, and that project was called the East Africa Daily Development Program. So it was targeting uh, close to 100,000 smallholder farmers in East Africa, but I was uh, responsible for, uh, for Uganda, basically as the uh, project manager, or you could say uh, the, the chief of party for that project in Uganda. So the idea that what intrigued me to join AIFA was the, uh, uh, the sustainable and transformational and more impactful model because uh, when I looked at the, the job ad and that project, the way they, it was going to be implemented, it was largely really uh, taking a business model for ensuring that it could support smallholder farmers to have a meaningful share within the daily value chain. So, that's what connected me to Haifa, and subsequently, uh, uh, from from then, after implementing that project for about five years, then I subsequently uh, was given this assignment to become the Haifa Uganda Country Director. And currently, what I do is I for I I oversee uh, all programs in the country, uh, most specifically by ensuring that I can do. Uh, I can provide strategic, strategic direction for the organization, but also ensure that we can, we, 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 we can live up to our, our mission of enabling uh, smallholder farmers to uh, close the living income gap. So currently, we, we more, we, we're basically working with uh, close to a network of uh, 40,000 smallholder farmers organized in a, a six-step produce organization uh, including focusing on uh, young young women and, and boys who we are calling youth to ensure that we can support them to uh, get access to employment opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not only access to employment, but even food. I feel like um, not many people, or I think the, the common misconception is that, you know, farmers must be the best, the most well-fed. Um, they have the most access to food, but that's actually not the reality. So can you both speak to what the reality really is and how you hope Heifer will kind of change that. Um, Willie, maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, good question. Um, so I, I, ideally, I think the, the most critical thing that we do is to ensure that we, we organize, uh, we organize uh, the smallholder farmers into viable produce organizations that we are calling the farmer uh, agribusiness um, entities 
most often they, they can take a cooperative arrangement or in some cases uh, within East Africa we form what we call pharma companies. Um, because we are dealing with smallholder farmers and definitely they, they have um, small investments in terms of uh, land acreage, in terms of uh, access to input, and in terms of having connections to the market, uh, that level of organization is really very important uh, so that uh, whoever comes to be able to interact with smallholder farmers, he finds a, a critical market, a critical platform that it can, it, it can enable to engage with them. So farm organization is very important. The, the other key thing is the aspect of capacity building to ensure that we could support them to have uh, to have an understanding of uh, good agronomical practices or good agricultural practices or what we call uh, uh, general agricultural principles so, so that if they decide to farm a certain crop, for instance, horticulture or maize, they understand what are the agronomic, agronomic practices that are going to enable them to increase production and productivity uh, so that they can really make a meaningful income in what they are producing. So the, the other important thing in our journey is connecting them to markets. And that connection to the market is, is both from the input side and also the uh, produce side. In other words, because they are now more organized, it makes meaningful sense for the private sector to come and have a conversation with them. For instance, some of the farm organizations that we've set up in East Africa, they are now connected to uh, daily processors. Uh, they take their milk on a daily basis and turn it into products like uh, yogurt, uh, cheese, uh, uh, powdered milk, which then goes within uh, the local market and some, some of it uh, to the export market. So that work of really uh, connecting them to the private sector is very important, but also to enable them get access to quality seeds, quality uh, acaricides. Uh, quality uh, qu quality uh, drugs for the animals, ensuring that they can really get access to uh, financial services. So we basically lay a platform which can create um, uh, meaningful change within communities, not just about the smallholder farmers that we work with, but that investment at the end of the day creates an ecosystem that causes local economic development and also ensures a link between rural areas and urban areas, because usually in, a, in our setting, in my setting in East Africa, uh, the rural areas provide food. They are very key in terms of feeding into the feed food systems, especially within within the urban areas. So that's how we go about, uh, about that business. Uh, and lastly, ensuring that we can also talk to government so that they can create an enabling environment, a key to each, uh, at the roads, uh, well graded so that farmers' produce can move from the rural areas onto the markets, which are usually within the urban areas. Mm -hmm. And Donna? Yeah, well, as um, William has, has stated, this is a this is a very perplexing problem and one that mm -hmm. our organization is working hard on. Um, it's widely known that over 800 million people go to bed hungry every night due to food insecurity. Um, and food insecurity is always traced back to the root causes of poverty. Um, for me as a farmer, it, it, farmer it's, it's truly gut-wrenching to know how hard farmers work on a daily basis. And many of them still have trouble feeding their families due 
to food insecurity. Um, in the USA, food systems have been diagnosed, uh, sorry, designed on a mass scale and have become centralized. Um, and they've been designed for efficiency. Most rural farmers practice monoculture agriculture um, and their product is shipped off to many parts of the country and other parts of the world at the benefit mostly of large corporations. Um, and I think this is at odds with growing and rising diverse crops, uh, raising diverse crops to feed ourselves and our communities. Um, and it's actually working against nature. And we talked about that before in terms of regenerative agriculture, working with nature instead of against it. Um, at Heifer USA, we're working hard to promote localized decentralized food systems. I think in Heifer USA, um, our example of uh, training farmers who can then tap into grassroots farmers cooperative um, and working with Cypress Valley meat uh, processing company, which is a mid-sized company, um, is a great example of how to dis decentralize uh, food systems and um, have a farming system where farmers can grow a diverse uh, crops and, and livestock and then are able to feed their families and their communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so then, um, I mean, you and William are explaining a lot of very valuable tools. You know, there's education, there's actual tool tools, um, there's connections, and a lot of these benefits or these ads are so much more valuable than, you know, a simple um, financial donation. And so can you explain to consumers, you know, that are maybe uncertain how to support smaller farmers, um, the value of these, these two strategies? Sure. Well, I mean, Heifer, Heifer International is a development organization instead of a relief organization. So we really believe in a, a sustainable long-term um, solution to hunger and poverty. Um, and I think that, you know, consumers can support our work and the, and the work that smallholder farmers are doing um, with actually what we're seeing now during this COVID crisis with people actually reevaluating where they're getting their food and, and moving more towards a direct to consumer approach instead of the long value chain um, that has obvious bottlenecks. And, you know, when you look at a long, the long value chain, um, especially in meat production right now, there's so many opportunities for something to break. It's an extremely fragile system. Um, so customers can support smallholder farmers by moving to more towards a direct-to-consumer um, mm -hmm. buying. Um, and we're seeing that more and more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. William, do you have anything to add there? Absolutely. So, yeah, in addition to mm -hmm. what Donna has said, uh, yeah, indeed the... The sustainable approach towards uh, uh, supporting the food systems in different localities where we work is, is very important. I mean, the, the context of Africa is that um, 70 percent, close to 70 percent uh, of the food uh, of the food chain is supported by smallholder farmers, and uh, without supporting smallholder farmers to be sustainable. Uh, and to be profitable, and, and that's important to me in terms of in terms of how they do uh, their business. Uh, you could potentially have um, a food crisis on onto the continent, and uh, and and we 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 progressively beginning to see that because 
currently you have uh, 40% of the population of uh, within the sub-Saharan Africa getting into the into the urban centers. And uh, the people who are sustaining that population who are now located within the urban areas in terms of access to food uh, are the smallholder are the smallholder farmers. So uh, to, to us, uh, that's very critical in terms of really uh, start looking at issues of food safety, issues of the smallholder farmers to be more sustainable so that they can really continue to sustain the food, uh, the food systems. Uh, within our own geography and 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 how we and how we are and how we are set up, so um, that's critical moving forward, and that's why uh, as if I would really begin in a, we really believe uh, in using farmer agribusinesses because that's a platform which really can really guarantee that the farmer can be sustainable. At the same time, the smallholder farmer can be sustainable, but also at the same time. They can contribute to uh, the regions or the country's food system, which is increasingly getting uh, urbanized. Mm -hmm. This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. And we're back. And so at the top of the episode, Donna, we were talking about how... Um, Heifer Ranch is very committed or is built on the commitment to grow and sell um, everything in as part of this whole healthy system. And I think we, that's, we need to kind of unpack that there. Um, I think it's great, but it's also a lot more expensive um, of money and time and effort. And so how do you respond to people that are, you know, wanting to buy organic and wanting to be kinder to the earth but you know they just can't afford it um how do you, yeah how do you, how would you explain that yeah well right now it is more expensive um so i would say that eco-conscious consumption growing is still in many ways a niche idea i look forward to when that's not the case um so as more consumers demand products grown regeneratively It'll enable more farmers to transition, leading to wider availability. And once we have wider availability, that cost will go down. Um, I would say also, I'm, I'm definitely not a policy expert and don't want to go deep down that road. Um, but this is a place where we really need policy change. Um, the government has to step in and make healthy food more widely available. Um, Heifer USA partners, for example, with the National Sustainable Agriculture Commission, and we're working on these issues now. 
So priorities really need to shift to allow access to sustainably grown food. Mm-hmm. And William, did you, or how are you noticing um, your farmers, your farm workers' relationships to organic um, versus not? And how, like, what would you see for the future of it? Yeah. Um, so the 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 the, the, in, the widening. Uh, middle class uh, especially within uh, within the east african region is beginning to uh, bring about those conversation of food safety uh, uh, for for the people uh, especially we see that the middle class is beginning to demand for uh, nutritious food when they come to the urban areas they demand for nutritious food safer food and usually the, the direction they want to take is uh, getting access to uh, organic food um, so despite that happening, and uh, uh, there are quite some farmers who possibly are identifying a niche market in that area, uh, but in context like, like ours whereby uh, most often regulation is weak um, uh, and, 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 yeah, and there's a lot of informal, informality in terms of uh, how businesses um, are run, uh, there are some bit, there's some bit of concern in terms of how... Uh, Pesticide is used. Uh, how acaricide is used uh, to some of the, 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 the farming practices, uh, and that's why that's why we uh, we bring value as AFA because what we do is that the package of training that we always provide our farmers in uh, their organized groups or in their cooperatives is to be able to start looking at some of those uh, technical aspects, agronomical practices. Uh, how can you ensure that you have responsible use? of pesticides and acaricides. How can you ensure that you can put onto the market safe food which is more competitive so that uh, you are able to draw a more meaningful income uh, rather than any other ordinary farmer who is growing anything without having a clear knowledge of what uh, he or she is putting onto the market. So that, that's a value that really Hefa brings into uh, this world equation to ensure that the smallholder farmers that we're preparing for the future are profitable, are more, respons- are more responsible, and that they are taking care of the uh, healthy needs of the market where they are selling their product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a few weeks ago, I'm Lori Flores, um, who is a professor. Um, we were talking about the lack of farm workers' rights um, during the pandemic, but you know, beyond and before that. And so I was wondering how coronavirus might have affected um, how you support your employees um, and, you know, if it's changed anything going forward? Oh, yes, um, if, if I'm, I may. Yes, in, indeed, we've had uh, COVID-19 having uh, a ripple effect in our, in our context, uh, for instance, in Uganda and East Africa, because we saw that, we saw that the governments within the region uh, put into place uh, a lockdown um, and, and that lockdown came with a number of um, other guidelines. For instance, uh, movement of, uh, of vehicles was limited between uh, 6.30 a.m. to 7 p.m. Uh, and and that, that, that had a great effect. It meant that uh, there was slow movement of either food from the rural areas to the urban areas. It potentially affected the logistics of movement of goods um, within the within the country so we saw uh, farmers uh, losing uh, losing income 
because the prices of their produce uh, drastically went down. In fact, uh, most of the studies we see that have been done by the Ministry of Finance of Uganda uh, Economic Policy Research Center indicates that uh, the agribusiness sector businesses were more were most affected more than any other sector. Uh, farmers were not able to access either input or services market. Uh, so the, the, there's a bit of some work for us to do on how can we put into place resilient resilience mechanism to uh, support our the farmers that we work with to bounce back. But also from uh, from our own staff, it was also um, a bit of uh, disruption because um, we could no longer um, come and work in the offices because government really uh, was emphasizing on social distancing. Uh, our staff had to work uh, using virtual means, but we, work, we operate in an environment whereby uh, certain services are not really very efficient. For instance, uh, internet services, internet coverage is, is not that uh, strong. The internet coverage is uh, close to about uh, 15%, 14% of the total population. Uh, even then, uh, most times it's not efficient. So that brought about a bit of disruption in terms of how, how, how we work as an organization. We could not also support uh, our farmers because our staff could not move from our offices or uh, where we, the bases where we operate from to go and possibly uh, provide the technical support uh, with the farmers in, in the rural areas. So yes, indeed there was a bit of that disruption. So what now we are doing is to uh, bounce back because what then that means is that we need to look at new ways of work. So instead of really uh, holding what we are calling face-to-face -face trainings with our farmers, uh, what we are doing is we're considering use of, uh, for instance, radio, mass radio, mm -hmm. to be able to reach out to them. Uh, we are considering using um, ICT tools, especially for, the for some of the farmers who can be able to read and write. For instance, send out mass messages, mass SMS text messages on their phone so that they can really get some, uh, some information in terms of how uh, uh, they manage work. For, for our staff, we're also uh, now uh, buying protective equipment so that as, as they go to uh, work with the farmers or interact with a few farmers, uh, the risk of them uh, either spreading or being or contracting uh, COVID-19 uh, does not happen. So in, 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 in broader terms, there has been disruptions from the farmer side uh, across all the other value chain actors which we work with, but also from internally our own staff, including even uh, making us to uh, 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 change our uh, our budgets and plans because uh, we are now looking at uh, looking at some investments which we never planned for at the beginning of our, of our planning period. Uh, like I said, buying PPEs, uh, buying uh, sanitizers, um, ensuring that few staff like two staff can only sit in a car. So that builds that builds some bit of uh, increasing costs on, on operating our business. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I would just echo all the things that, that William said. There have definitely been disruptions um, and we've had to implement protocols um, across the board in terms of how we work uh, 
the ranch, our 1,200-acre ranch, is, is a unique ecosystem in that we have farmers. Uh, we have a small, very small staff of professional farmers. Um, I manage oh, four other employees that are farmers. And then our real workforce is residential volunteers, so volunteers that come in from all over the country um, to give you know, up to a year of their lives to learn about farming and support the work, work that Heifer is doing. Um, and so basically when, when COVID hit, um, Heifer, we, we, any non-essential, I don't think we have any non-essential employees, but employees that could work from home did so. So our operations staff, um, and anyone that was able to could work from home. And so the ranch has become what we we lovingly call the bubble, the ranch bubble, which is just the ag team um, and our volunteers. Um, so we're we're living and working together. I My partner and I actually moved out to the ranch when this started. Um, and we're all living and working here and we try to keep it very closed. Um, so not a lot of traffic going in and out. We've all made commitments to uh, socially distance and do all of the things that, that are recommended by the CEC plus, um, but just trying to keep this as a very safe space due to the fact that we have such high production. Um, mm -hmm. It's just imperative that we don't lose any of our workforce. Um, in terms of our training, which is just as important as production, that has gone on. And what we found is that um, we've been able to be very agile in shifting to, you know, things like Facebook Live and online trainings to be able to reach uh, farmers that we're training and the general public who remain interested in our work here at the ranch. And I find that, you know, with our farmers that work for grassroots, because they're smallholder farmers, these are family farmers, in terms of the work that they're doing, that has not necessarily been affected that much because they're not, you know, most of our farmers that produce for, for grassroots don't have um, staff coming in to work with them. These are smallholders, small family farms. So that's been able to continue as well as this increase uh, for the direct-to-consumer market that has only bolstered grassroots product and made and make our uh, demand for supply um, incredibly strong. And I think, you know, from conversations that I've had with other um, direct-to-consumer producers, that theme is, is the same throughout the United States. There's been sort of a, a I would say, a, a, a newborn, not, I mean, there's been a, a great insurge and in interest of people uh, buying from a direct consumer market, and that's been good for our business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's, um, the key thing though is is both you and William are talking about the farmers, but not necessarily the farm workers, and so I wonder if um, it might be, you know, unique um, that you are able to have your very safe um, farm bubble, but do you happen to know how fellow farmers or fellow farm owners are dealing with, you know, the, the, the disruptions to their farm worker labor force. Besides what I see, I mean, because we work with such smallholder farmers, um, I would say that I don't have a vast knowledge of that beyond what I'm reading and seeing online. Mm -hmm. And I would say that, you know, my exposure to that and my knowledge of that is based on watching the disruptions that have been happening with large processing facilities. 
um, and how disruptive that is and how that it's, that's affecting um, product getting to markets um, as well as illness, which is, is, is running rampant through these facilities. Um, yeah, so that is, that's my experience. And we just, because of our scale, um, we're not directly facing those challenges, knock on wood. Mm-hmm. William, did you have anything to add? Yeah. Or shall I move on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah from, uh, from the context of Uganda, uh, uh, most of the farmers that we're working with, uh, like Donna, is doing at the ranch, are smallholder farmers. And, and for smallholder farmers in in my country, in my region, it's it's usually uh, it's usually buyer's market uh, for most of the commodity the commodity chains that you're engaging in. So um, uh, the, the disruptions of lack of access to markets and uh, uh, logistics being disrupted and they're not connected to uh, to, to the cities uh, led led to gross losses. And what some of the farmers had to do is they had to cut the prices by half. Uh, in many cases, they had to uh, give out some of the some of their producers free of charge to their neighbors uh, to support them go through. Uh, especially those who do not have, who who you could say that maybe were not uh, food secure, uh, to support them to go get out of uh, get out of the problem, the current COVID impact problems that are, that it has brought. So that, that's how they have uh, they have really managed to. Uh, uh, to 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 get out to get out this this situation, but but otherwise it remains uh, uh, a buyer's market. They they do not have any much more power. They, so long as the big aggregators or the small traders are not able to come and take their produce away from them, uh, it became a bit of a bit of a challenge. Uh, uh, but what we what we saw is that for the farmers, especially those who are within our network, that were organized and had strong produce organizations because of the quality of the products that we were providing onto the market. The processors and big aggregators were willing to consider taking their products at uh, at least at a much more reduced price, but they are not like the other the other farmers who are not really organized, who are not able to really uh, uh, sell anything. So uh, our learning from our space is that uh, and also from the farmers, most of them, what they are learning is that collective action, uh, I think, is the way to go for them. Uh, if at all, really, are going to continue doing their business better. That is becoming a very critical lesson to most of our farmers in, in the rural areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to wrap, um, it seems like, um, thankfully, um, many businesses are taking a moment to reflect on their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and farm work is historically built on the exploitation of immigrant labor, and so it's technically um, very diverse, but it's certainly not equitable or inclusive, and so how are you kind of wrapping your minds around um, this right now, and what are your, what are you doing to change for the future, perhaps? Yeah, I think this is a really complex, complex issue um, that has to be addressed from multiple directions. Um, Heifer has always been committed to working with communities. Um, Heifer USA right now, um, we've, we as well have been committing, committed to working with anyone who wants to learn how to farm. 
um, and we have focused on socioeconomically and marginalized communities. Um, I think that, well, for example, right now, I think a, a, a wonderful project that we're working on is with a group of farmers in Mississippi who originally worked with Hever back in the 80s, um, and they have ma maintained their co-op um, that they started with Heifer in the 80s. And as Grassroots has expanded and we're looking for more producers and we look uh, in, you know, the general Mid-South area outside of Arkansas, we've identified this group of black farmers in Mississippi who we're currently training um, to produce pork for us. So we've remained very committed to training and bringing on anyone who wants to learn how to farm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, from, from for, for the side of uh, uh, for, for the side of Uganda and East Africa in general, is that um, the the challenge we see is that we are dealing with a very unknown future. So that really makes um, things very complex in, in terms of how you you're responding to uh, the situation that has 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 brought has been brought about by uh, the impacts of COVID uh, COVID nineteen. But what we've chosen to do uh, within uh, the short term and medium term is that uh, we've left uh, our eyes and ears open for learning and keep on changing strategies as we move, we move ahead. Uh, but critical of all, what, what we now can't be doing is to uh, ensure that we can support uh, our smallholder farmers and our staff to be safe and healthy because uh, uh, you, you can only survive, you can only talk about the future if at all you are, you are healthy, you are safe, and, and, you, you, are safe and, and, and you understand how you can protect yourself against uh, COVID-19. So um, some of our work that we are doing in mainstreaming in our training is really educate our farmers on uh, how can you prevent yourself from uh, acquiring COVID-19, okay? Uh, issues of uh, social distancing, ensuring that hygiene and, and, and washing your hands are critical, um, ensuring that where necessary do not go in, in big gatherings. Uh, that kind of message is very important for us to reinforce re and re-emphasize in, in all the nature of communications and manner of interaction that we have with uh, our smallholder farmers. Uh, uh, and then next, which is uh, a little bit also short term, but also medium term, we, we are looking at uh, stimulus packages that can enable these smallholder farmers to bounce back. Uh, we noticed that most of them, uh, because of the impact of uh, uh, COVID-19, not majorly not accessing markets, um, they have run down most of their savings. And the moment the savings are run down, then they are not able to get back into their productive cycle. So we're looking at how can we support them to uh, get access to capital so that they can rebuild uh, their businesses? How can we support them to use ICT tools? Uh, because that is seemingly becoming a new normal. Instead of doing, uh, instead of engaging in what we're calling cash transactions, we're now seeing most businesses are switching on using of uh, mobile money in in the cost of, in, in the context of in the context of Uganda. Um, we are seeing changes in how the logistics uh, is being done. Um, uh, for instance, some of the things we are looking at, how can we support the smallholder farmers 
to build a cold chain. If I have my chicken in the rural areas, but they cannot be put onto the truck, uh, do we have a cold chain system that can ensure that uh, those those poultry birds uh, can reach at in, uh, can reach the market at a, at, a, at a certain stage? So we're thinking of things like uh, how can we support them to do value addition so that they can maximize use of uh, the local market and also uh, and also and also the, the region market. So we, we're looking at a set of stimulus packages which we have structured um, medium term and also long term to be able to support them to fit into uh, the new normal that is that is emerging. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Meant to be eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.